2: Michael Reid Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
3: Good morning. It's Thursday, 9th of March. On the show this morning, Ireland is en route to becoming the worst country in Europe for uninsured vehicles. The government backlash continues over the eviction ban. The Taoiseach says measures to retain small landlords will also be good for renters. Having failed to convince the Court of Appeal that her sentence was too severe, Lisa Smith now intends to challenge the conviction itself. This and more on the programme between now and 11 o'clock here with Alan Cantwell. Don't forget, if you want to make contact with us, you can text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. The Taoiseach says measures to retain small landlords will also be good for renters. Leo Varadkar says more than 40,000 small landlords have left the market in recent years. However, opposition parties and advocacy groups have criticised the decision to end the eviction ban at the end of this month. But the Taoiseach says they need to prevent more small landlords exiting the market. Sinn Fein leader Mary Lou MacDonald says the government isn't doing enough to help people struggling to pay their rent or find somewhere to live now Sean Defoe our political correspondent joins us this morning Morning Sean Um, this just seems to be going on and on and on there's no end in sight if nothing else it's galvanising the opposition with a single purpose and a single goal Sinn Féin are seeking a Doyle vote on it will they get it do you think?
4: Uh, they will, uh, not necessarily in the sense we might traditionally think of it because the government doesn't have to have a vote on this in order for it to go through. Basically, they're just allowing the legislation that they passed last year to, to lapse, so it doesn't have to come into it. From the government then, what Féin will probably do is submit a private member's motion uh, on Tuesday week. The dollars and recess next week for St. Patrick's Day but the, fo- the following week, which means they'll put forward a motion saying that this is terrible and it's awful and it's going to lead to more homelessness and it, uh, you know, the government are awfully terrible people uh, for doing it. And there does have to be a vote then on private members. Members' motions. So the government will have a couple of options then. They can put forward a, a counter motion, if you like, saying, look, this has to be done. It's a, and yes, it's, it would be bad for some people, as they sort of said, but long-term, uh, short term pain for long term gain basically seems to have been the argument for Leo Varadkar. Where they might come into trouble there is with some of the TDs who are unhappy. And we know there are TDs who are unhappy about this, both in Venegeta and fall, but most vocal, I suppose, have been the two within the Green Party and Patrick Costello and NASA Hurricane Patrick Costello saying, publish the legal advice and let's keep this ban and challenge it in the courts if the concern are, uh, are are so grace from Rosha Fanning from the Attorney General about what the constitutionality of this is and that's a horrible saying it was a completely wrong decision that it's going to lead to an uptick of homelessness and even the idea which came from the Green Party And was put into this on Tuesday in that tenants will be offered uh, first dibs, if you like, if a a landlord decides to sell the property. She said that there's going to be a rush of landlords trying to sell before they have to stick to that particular measure because an independent evaluation is involved. uh, And therefore, she thinks that's going to lead to an extra rush. So it puts pressure on them to either vote with the government or vote against the government, as they have done in the past those two TDs on a Sinn Féin motion on the National Maternity Hospital, for which they were suspended for six months. However, a second Mm. offence, you imagine, will come with a much greater penalty.
3: Okay, let's just go back to prior to the government making this decision not to extend are we absolutely sure it was grounded on legal advice from the AG Rossifanning? Because that, it seems to be a little bit unclear at this particular juncture, because all of a sudden we've had the Taoiseach and the Housing Minister default to the landlord argument that we need to keep landlords, small landlords, in the game in order to try and alleviate the pressure. But surely it, would, it was as a result of AG advice
4: from what I understand, it's a bit of both. It's not like one or the other. They're both played into the decision. So the Attorney General's advice seems to be consistent with the last few Attorney Generals, and it hasn't pointed out that the last few Attorney Generals who have all advised on this have all been landlords. Uh, you know, you have to say that hopefully they would act without that interest colouring their decision, but it is still a fact at the same time, and that this would be open to constitutional challenge in the courts, and the only way that the government was able to bring it in in the first place was by it being temporary, therefore not impinging long-term on the rights in the constitution to housing and what a lot of uh, you know, campaigners like Father Peter McBerry has said is let it go to the Supreme Court and we'll know within two months whether or not it's constitutional and if it's not then change the constitution and have a referendum which they think would be widely supported. The other side as you mentioned is the landlord's argument and I think that did factor in as well and I, I asked Daryl O'Brien to the press conference the other day is this in the short term going to increase homelessness and he said yes very possibly we can't rule that out and minutes afterwards in the dole, Leo Baraker presumably having heard that very uh, quick to point out that they are doing this for the medium and the long term that yes there will be some short term pain for, uh, for renters but that if you kept on letting landlords leave the market, then you have the question of well, where is there any rental property at all and the only landlords in the market then potentially uh, would be institutional landlords which is not necessarily a good thing either. So it's it's not
5: one or the other but a little bit of both both factored into the system.
3: Okay, now we, we seem to be unclear in relation to what the Housing Minister is proposing around incentives for Uh, landlords I'm talking about the taxation policy which may shift as a result of budget 2024 he's talking about the possibility of um, cutting CGT to zero if a landlord decides to sell to an in situ tenant or to a housing authority or the local authority the reality is here because of that information deficit coming from the government around this this is just uh, exacerbating the situation for them is it not?
4: Well, one of the most shocking things I thought about it, other than actually lifting the ban, was that there was no real ancillary announcement. There wasn't, okay, yes, we are lifting this, but in the short term, here is something for tenants and here is something for landlords. Instead, both are being asked to sort of trust the government on this when there is a deficit of trust and wait until the budget to see what comes. There was a tax strategy paper delivered to the Department of Housing outlining a number of different things that they could do and that included things like um, including landlords in the rent-a-room scheme So the rent-a-room scheme mm-hmm. where if you rent out a room in your own home you get €14,000 a year uh, tax-free Extending it an landlords so they'd get the first fourteen thousand euro of their earnings a year tax free, and that would make a difference. The one you mentioned, um, lifting capital gains tax if they sell uh, to an institution or to a um, or to a tenant who is in situ, but none of these have actually been decided on yet. So for many. Instances, landlords are now being asked to look at the market. Okay, they don't have that eviction ban on, so they can now, if they need to start the process of evictions, which still takes a while and could still see people if they were issued with an eviction notice, they have somewhere between 60 and 90 days before they have to be out. Or indeed, people who have already been issued with an eviction notice having until June 18th in some cases, before they could be evicted and do anything else with the property. So it's a lot of trust being asked that there is something coming down the
3: line. Now, that is better than knowing there is nothing coming
4: down the line. At least there will be something. But again, no certainty really for landlords either that they will definitely have what they need.
3: Uh, it strikes me they were blindsided by this and I say it in the context of the subcommittee which was set up to look at how we resolve this problem. There was a raft of tax measures discussed at that subcommittee, none of which were contained in the memo that the Minister for Housing brought to Cabinet. Does, does that, uh, that, that's an uneasy development that we had potential solutions in terms of taxation but it was never discussed.
4: Well, this is the, the, the money part of it as well. I mean, the Minister could have brought that, but most likely it would have been shot down by the Minister of Finance and Minister for Public Expenditure saying that this is not the time to do a €1 billion euro investment into the market. That is the kind of thing you have to do within a budget. And indeed, the Tisha Glee of speaking in Georgia, last week said that any big intervention for renters or landlords is not going to come before the budget. That's something you have to put a lot of thought into because as well, if you go down the tax route, and, and let's just take that example of, of extending the rent room scheme to landlords, the estimates were that that could cost anywhere between about 350 and 760 million euro. So if you add in, say, even another small amount for renters, you're you're talking about close to a billion euro spend already. And that is money that is foregone every year, then, that you agree to that. It's a little bit like the the tax credit that was brought in for renters out to 2025. You're not just giving them 500 This year, but it's 500 euro every year, and that adds up to a lot of money that the government doesn't have. So they were never going to do it outside of a budgetary cycle, but that makes, again, for very slow decisions, which is very frustrating for both landlords trying to make a decision about their future in the market and then their tenants. You have a huge amount of uncertainty about where they're going to be, too.
3: Okay, you, you've got to imagine, and I presume there will be, perhaps this weekend, a, a poll out as a result of what has happened, and the government will take an absolute hammering. Coupled with that, it is not going to go away because there's so much more energy in this, And there's the um, galvanic nature of what it has done to the opposition parties. We've got the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up. We've got the Taoiseach travelling to New York and the importance of government ministers travelling around the world for St. Patrick's Day. It's going to have a huge implication in terms of the messaging that they're getting out, won't it?
4: It, it, it really, Yeah, there's no doubt about that. It, it's almost as if they don't want anyone under the age of 35 to vote for them, that was the impression <laughs> that I got from talking to people in the opposition who are targeting those voters in particular, that they said they, they just could not understand why this was being done without, you know, without the, even pretending to have something else. Uh, that, that could lure those voters in or could support them through anything. And renters have taken hit after hit after hit, year after year. The cost of renting in this country has, has like, dramatically shot up over the last 10 years and hasn't exactly been a very friendly place for you if you are in the, the millennial age bracket. So look, I think this is going to dominate now. Sinn Féin have made sure that they know there will be that vote coming up. So it is something that is going to dog the Taoiseach in Washington, the in New York, and, and every other minister who's gone abroad. They're going to be shouting about it. And of course, you are going to hear it the Labour Party last night calling for the Housing Minister to stay at home rather than travel to mm-hmm. actually reverse the eviction ban and, and to fix things. I'm sure there will be more calls like that, particularly when Tara O'Brien is in the door this morning at half ten and then leave his questions as well later
3: on. Uh, Sean, I just want to shift to something else which came up yesterday, and that is a document, I don't know if you've had eyes on it yet, I certainly haven't. It's called The Case for a Left-Wing Government Getting Rid of Fenofol and Funograil. It was put together by People Before Profit, the uh, Taoiseach alluded to it, and on the basis of what he read in it, He described them as a bit bonkers. But just for the benefit of our listeners, and I'm quoting the Taoiseach on this, in this document, we're told that the rich using their control over the media will try to turn the population against a left-led government led by Deputy Mary Lou MacDonald. They will deploy the police and the army to move against the elected left-wing government. And it's not just the Guardi that they're going to be involved in this conspiracy. It's the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, e even primary teachers, the GAA and taxi drivers are all part of this conspiracy to overthrow the elected left-wing government under the leadership of Deputy MacDonald, assisted by People for Profit. It's kind of bonkers stuff.
4: I often wonder, you know, am I just being left out of all these... Well, I was just going to here, say, you're disappointed that
3: you didn't get a mention in Yeah, show?
4: you know, you didn't get an invite to the party that, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. M- must have missed that email coming in when you do overthrow a left-wing government, alright, and get the guards on side. Yeah, look, it, it, it is... Some of the stuff in there that is, is, is absolutely bonkers. Uh, and they were selling it as well, they're selling this... 3 the euro market, a copy. Think three euro and then I think a two euro <laughs> delivery as well, as, you know, inflation on delivery, it cost of the fiver. Uh, so much for, you know, the socialist ideal of everything free for everybody. But anyway, uh, yeah, look, there's elements of that. And you know what? It's slightly more serious now. It, it's stuff like that that actually does a cr- discredit to the idea of a left-wing government because I don't think the idea of a left-wing government after the next election is totally bunkers. I think there is a good chance of it because of where Sinn Féin are, because of where the likes of the Social Democrats are positioning themselves to be. I personally don't think the People for Profit have any interest in being in government now or, or ever and are actually quite happy in the position that they are, being sort of four or five seats in the doll and, and being able to shout about everything. Um, I, I don't think they would ever enter a coalition nor last very long in a coalition but there is a prospect of one happening and then it is stuff like that kind of bonker stuff that all of the coup have to get us all the time um, that, that just... Chairs away is its credibility, whereas you could see, very easily see a scenario if Social Democrats continue to rise, even if they do yeah. get what the, the poll said at the weekend, which was 10%, and then you have Sinn Féin on 33-34, you know, very quick, quickly you can see how that would add up yep. to a very near majority. So, yeah. Uh, but don't don't believe everything you read in the media and don't believe everything you read in <laughs> Panclet. Sean, um, I, Sh- Sh-
3: right. Sh- Sh- I can't let you go without uh, just asking about the podcast. Let me explain. What have you got uh, coming up on that?
4: Oh, thanks a yeah. So uh, we've got an interesting one this week. So we are talking about the Immigrant Investor Programme, these golden visa programmes. Oh,
3: right, which has come to an abrupt end.
4: Exactly, yeah. So we're looking into why it came to an abrupt end. Obviously, it's particularly pertinent in Laos because €15 million um, went for the new stadium. Peter Fitzpatrick is on the podcast talking to me about how he organised that and how he got it together. And this was something that allowed basically international millionaires, the vast majority of who were Chinese, to come in and buy Irish residency for a certain amount of money. Just
3: explain, for, for the benefit of our listeners, how that actually worked, Sean, because it was a caveat to it before you got the actual visa.
4: There was. So you had to make an investment, and that could go through a, a number of different ways. So the, You had to put a million euro into an Irish business, two million euro into an Irish uh, real estate tr- trust, or else uh, 400,000 into a, a, a project that was of benefit to the arts or sport or culture or civic uh, entities in Ireland. And actually, quite a lot of organisations, very good organisations like the Peelum of Grey Trust. Uh, like Beaumont Hospital, like Tala Hospital, they all got money through this particular scheme and as did Laos GAA to to build the new stadium. So they they did it that way. As I said, the vast majority were Chinese and it was very abruptly closed last month amid mm-hmm. this surge in applications again in China. So we'll explore that a bit in the podcast, why it was closed and whether or not okay, well, well, it was without giving
3: without giving too much away, was there one single definitive reason or was it a multitude of reasons that they decided well, to end it? Yeah.
4: Yeah, well, the department's been a small bit coy on it, and uh, what they were saying is that this was obviously set up in 2012 when the country was flat broke uh, as a way to get money in. They brought in about 1.2 billion euro over the lifetime of the government. And Simon Harris said in his speech that, "Look, we don't really need that anymore. We're doing very well. Uh, we shouldn't have it in." But there were definitely security concerns, despite the very, very heavy screening the Department of Justice put all these uh, these characters through. That when there was a sudden surge in applications, this maybe had to be looked at again, and a bit of question mark uh, rose over it.
3: Okay, where do they get the podcast, um,
4: Sean? So you can find it on the uh, the News Talk app, which is fair, but go loud, or you can go to any good, uh, reputable or irreputable podcast <laughs> provider will find it. Let me explain with Sean Defoe.
3: Lovely, Sean. Thanks so much for that. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. L- 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 F- Email Michael at LMFM.ie if you want to give us uh, your comments on any of the items this morning. Now, Ireland is en route to becoming the worst country in Europe for uninsured vehicles. That's according to the CEO of the Motor Insurers Bureau of Ireland, who told an Oireachtas committee that one in every 12 private vehicles have no insurance. It says the use of automatic number plate recognition needs to be enacted as a matter of urgency. Well, joining us this morning is Darren Orochin, TD from Me, the East. And party spokesperson on transport and member of the Oireachtas Committee on Transport and Communications. Uh, Deputy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, it surely should come as no great shock that this is the case in relation to the numbers in Ireland. I mean, it's been a perennial problem here for a very long time.
2: It, it, it has, um, and it, it seems to be a, a case that, it, that it's getting worse. Um, and, and we are an outlier, an extreme outlier. Uh, it looks like we, we'll be the... The, the worst in europe uh, if we if we continue on the, the current tr- trajectory uh, i think um over the last two years alone the number of uninsured drivers has grown by more than thirty two thousand um and there was a, there was an increase in the last twelve months alone of, of thirteen thousand vehicles uninsured um you know that that amounts to eight point three percent of of uh, um of the, of the total bri- hmm. private vehicles, there's 2.2 million, and the uninsured are, are up on 188,000.
3: So we've got to ask why. Why is it the case?
2: yeah and and we don't have that it's funny that was the the line of inquiry, inquiry i was interested in you know what is the driver of it um um why is it happening why are we unique uh, and uh, in fairness the, the 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 ceo of the mabi um mr Fitzgerald, um uh, he pointed to a number of factors we have a, we have a different regime in place here um we don't have the, the you know to take for example in in britain where um if, you know, in Ireland, you need to be caught in, a, in an uninsured vehicle to be able to be uh, identified and, and prosecuted where they have systems in place in Britain and in other countries where, you know, with number plate identification or even, you know, you don't need to be in the car. All you need to do is own a car that's that's uninsured uh, and you can be you can be prosecuted. It's, a, it's an offence to to own a, a car that's that's uninsured and. Um,
3: so so thing. why, therefore, are we not in a position of this country? Is it legislative? Is it as a result of a lack of finance that we don't have number plate recognition? Because that seems to be the easiest way around this, that we have uh, on yeah. on the policing unit who are out in their cars and it flashes up instantly
2: absolutely there's, there's there's a missing piece of the jigsaw the other thing that that I did raise and, and the miBA weren't in a position to uh, to answer it is uh, is the cost of insurance a driver here you know we've got very high insurance costs they haven't been coming down the way they should be is that a driver I think that's a piece of research that needs to happen but but f- fundamentally in terms of the key elements of the the regime that need to be implemented uh, immediately uh, are the, the that legislative Piece uh, in in terms of so we have a database of the insured vehicles and um, we have Guardi uh, doing their, their their spot checks and their their checks inside of the road um, where 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 they have checkpoints they also have you know the the speed guns and they can they can see the the um, number plates of of individual cars but essentially none of those systems talk to each other. So they can look at the number plate in your car um, as you drive along the road, but they can't tell from that whether you're insured or not insured. Whereas the, the systems exist that if they just talk to each other and this piece of legislation is needed to allow them to talk to each other, they could do that. So... Uh, the speed camera the the guard at the side of the road with the speed camera to check in if you're speeding uh, can also check uh, if if your your car is insured and without stopping you uh, you you can get a notification and there's a range of pen- penalties that, that go with, go with uh, being uninsured. You know, an automatic court appearance, five penalty points and a substantial fine. Okay. Or, in, or in egregious cases, that uh, result in, in six months of imprisonment. But we need this legislation. Yeah,
3: so so we, <laughs> know, we know what yeah. the solution is. And, you know, this coupled with what was going on with drones around Dublin Airport and what it took in order for the government to act on legislation and on finance to resolve this problem, what is it going to take in relation to this?
2: Well, it's entirely within the gift of the government, um, and the, this—it's the the road traffic uh, bill 2021 bill, which actually could have been a 2019 bill um because they, they they update roads regulations and and rules every so often. But this is now an omnibus bill that has a, a mishmash of everything in it and has this this important piece. But but it's within you know it's not the opposition that are holding this up at all. We've facilitated every step of the way. We've engaged with it. We've amended it as best we could. But it's 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 entirely within the gift of the government. So that's the the minister, Eamon Ryan, mm. the department to schedule it on the uh, on the the doll schedule. Is actually it's the Shannon that needs to go to next. Okay, but you, we we will work to ensure that 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 passes as quickly as possible. Receive the due scrutiny. But okay. Minister Ryan needs to bring it forward.
3: Right. Were you able to ascertain from the MIBI CEO David Fitzgerald yesterday the extent that uh, the uninsured drivers or the, the impact uninsured drivers are having on the cost of policies because we have to pick up the cost of uninsured drivers
2: Absolutely. So this is this is an organisation that was set up in, in 1955, and since then they have paid out uh, over two billion euros in, in compensation uh, since they were since they were established. Um, we bear the burden of that. People who are who are paying their insurance bear, bear the burden of that cost. That's in the region of 70 million euros a, a year. Uh, average claims uh, are in the region of 78,000 euro, and that, in practical terms, has the impact of an additional 30 to 35 euro on every single uh, uh, premium that's that's paid out. So that's a burden that we all have to have to bear whilst we know uh, 1 in 12 drivers are driving around or okay. uninsured. And, and the full range of, of impacts, Alan, um, you know, the catastrophic in, injuries, fatalities, uh, um, uh, everything that goes with that, it's, it's just completely unacceptable, and it does need to be addressed.
3: Okay, now it's predominantly young male drivers who are responsible for going around in uninsured vehicles. The statistics have told us that. Now, 35 euro extra on top of one's insurance policy, it's not a huge amount when you consider the cost of a policy, particularly to young drivers under the age of, we'll say, 25. We need also to address that. But let it be said, insurance premiums have been coming down over the past number of years when we have seen the whole claims process uh, examined and streamlined.
2: Yeah, well, there's there's a lot more to to do there. I would say, and and there, you know, in the whole insurance space, and I have to say, Pierce Doherty has has um, led the charge in relation to the the practices within within uh, the the insurance industry. They they denied that that piece of of uh, penalising loyal customers. Of course, it it was the the, the case. Um, I think, you know, the, the insurance companies should be on notice um, that they need to ensure that, that there's competition within that, that sector, but also that they're given a, a fair deal for, for, um, for, their, for, for their customers as well. And, and the, the, the premiums do need to come down in line with the, the, the reduced amount of, of claims and the reduced amount of, of expenditure on, on insurance companies' behalf. But, you know, I, I think there's still some way to go.
3: Darren, let me just ask you, um, before I let you go, the sort of stories that you were hearing from people that you represented the constituency following the news by the government that they're going to end the eviction ban.
2: Uh, It's absolutely horrendous, I have to say, and I've been in in politics for some time, Alan, This is just horrendous. Um, It's actually heartbreaking. It's incredibly frustrating. I just cannot understand why government are taking this approach. Um, uh, There there are, you know, so we have very many people contacting our constituency offices. Uh, We have had for the last number of months um, with impending notices to quit. We know that there is so little alternative in terms of private rented accommodation and so little availability in terms of, of, uh, emergency accommodation in bed and breakfasts and in hotels um, or anywhere else in refuges for, for that matters, matter so I have absolutely no doubt and I don't say it uh, uh, with any degree of pleasure at all that this measure is going to increase homelessness in, in County Mead um, I don't think, you know, I understand there are challenges there for, for landlords, but I have to say government have provided no solutions for landlords either. And in and, and, and my understanding, um, every facet of our housing system is now broken and successive governments have actually created that and they are not going to resolve it and I, I just you know we're go- we will do everything we can to support people okay, in well, do the, in you the not,
3: weeks and months ahead Do you not accept the defence on the part of the government when they say that you know if we push the landlords out We are in a really serious situation. Things are bad now, but they will be far worse if we extend that ban. It could be in for some form of constitutional challenge, and we will see a flight of landlords out of the place, and we will be left in a far worse situation. At least this is buying time.
2: They have presided over a flight of landlords. They have presided over it since at least 2016. They haven't responded in any shape or form to hold on to landlords. They have driven them out of the market. And r- lifting an eviction ban is not going to make a blind bit of difference to that. Landlords are leaving the market because the, the, the numbers don't add up for them. As they outline, they, 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 they see REITs and big investors coming in and being, being treated in an entirely different way through the, through the tax regime. So, so landlords are, are leaving the market. And, and people are being forced into, into eviction. The, the, the only thing that will come as a result of this suite of measures that they are proposing, and I would ask the question, why didn't they, they uh, introduce the, the, the uh, tenant in situ scheme in an aggressive way six, 12 months ago? Why are they just talking about it now? This idea of forced refusal for, for, for tenants uh, that are in situ will make absolutely no difference at all where is the rollout of a, 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 an extensive rollout of um, social and affordable housing I point to, to Ashford, for example 76 social units that are going to be delivered there, it it's taken them eight years to deliver them. If mm. Owner Brin was the minister for housing, those houses would have been delivered. Ah, come on now, let's not get into
3: party political uh, broadcasts uh, 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 here. I mean, clear, I the reality is, let's hang on, on no, a second. No, 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 it's, no, important. no, no it's important. No. It's important. Sorry, yeah, it's important to important. stress it's this that it, there are so now. there are so many moving parts to trying to get a house from planning let, up let to me, roof stage, let, that it just doesn't happen overnight.
6: Well,
2: overnight, let's be clear, Alan. In 2016, Owen Murphy identified a site owned by the Department of Education, owned by the state that was going to be used for delivering housing. Those houses will not be delivered until 2024. Now you tell me what the barriers were to delivering those houses. They were all self-prescribed barriers. There's no reason, absolutely no reason why those houses couldn't have been delivered in two years. If Owen O'Brien was the Minister for Housing in 2016, those houses would have been built in 2018. Okay. I can guarantee you that.
3: Darren, we leave it there. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Fein TD for me, these. Thank you for joining us this morning. It, it just It strikes me, you know, when I think back, and it just came to my mind that a government was brought down when a Minister for Finance put 2% VAT, I think it was, on children's shoes. Now, here we have something of a magnitude that I can't remember in my lifetime in this country that has so incensed people in this country. So I just wonder what the final outcome of this will be in the coming weeks and months. Michael, michael Reid on, on LMFM. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Having failed to convince the Court of Appeal that her sentence was too severe, Lisa Smith now intends to challenge the conviction itself. The former Irish soldier was handed a 15-month prison sentence last year after being convicted of being a member of the terrorist group ISIS. Of course, correspondent Frank Graney has more on this. Uh, morning, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Take us back to, I suppose, the genesis of this story with Lisa Smith. It goes back as far as 2015,
7: doesn't it? It does, yes, Alan. And I suppose one of the many unique features of, of the case is the fact that Lisa Smith was once a member of the Irish Defence Forces. Mm-hmm. Um, she served with the Irish Army from 2001 to 2011. And one of the main reasons that she decided to leave was because she had converted to Islam. Uh, The army no longer reflected or aligned with her religious beliefs. We heard that she was radicalized online by an American convert that she met on Facebook. He mentored her on certain aspects of Islamic faith. And then, as you say, October 2015, she moved to Syria. Um, She had lied to her family about where she was going. It wasn't the first time that she'd gone there. Um, but this was a relevant state from the prosecution's point of view. Um, having spent some time in detention camps over there, uh, she was eventually repatriated to Ireland in late 2019. And what she got up to over there in Syria in those four years or so formed the basis of her prosecution. She was, when she was brought home, she was charged with two offences. She was accused of being a member of ISIS. And she also stood trial for an alleged attempt to fund terrorism. And that was in relation to an €800 Euro wire transfer to an ISIS fighter. She was found guilty on the membership charge. She was acquitted on the other. And last summer, uh, she was jailed for 15 months. And it was that sentence that was the subject of the appeal.
3: Okay. and now she went to court and lost that. Now she wants to appeal the conviction. Is that correct?
7: That's right, yes. Um, She was handed this 15-month prison sentence. And I suppose there was a great degree of urgency from her legal team's point of view to have an appeal heard as quickly as possible. Um, They had raised a lot of issues in mitigation and I suppose one of the biggest ones was that Lisa Smith has a young daughter, she is a single mother, and that was something that the court did take into account, gave a very lengthy uh, judgment when it handed down uh, that sentence uh, last year and it felt that she had crossed the threshold that required um, a custodial sentence not just to punish Lisa Smith for what she did, but also a really important um, feature of the sentence that was handed down was to deter others who might be thinking of travelling to foreign lands to join terrorist groups uh, like ISIS. This was the first time that a case like this came before the Irish courts. The Special Criminal Court is all too familiar with, you know, cases where people are brought before the courts accused of being members of the IRA or other dissident Mm -hmm. groups on Irish soil, but this was the first time that somebody was prosecuted, and in this case successfully prosecuted, for joining a terror group on foreign soil. Um, She was handed that 15-month prison sentence. Her lawyers had made the case for her to be given a fully suspended sentence. They claimed that the sentencing judges didn't give enough weight to all of the mitigating factors in the case, and they also accused them of wronging her by not giving her credit for the time that she spent in various detention camps in Turkey and Syria before she was eventually repatriated to Ireland in 2019. Those camps we heard during the trial were described as absolutely appalling. This was a lengthy judgment delivered yesterday. It spanned almost 100 pages long, but in the end, they rejected each and every one okay. of her grounds of appeal. They found no issue with the sentence handed down.
3: OK, Frank, I can't let you go without uh, discussing the Enoch Burke Circus, which came to town during the week in most unedifying manner that members of the family were rejected from the High Court by Gardy.
7: Yes, absolutely. Incredible scenes before the Court of Appeal two days ago. It's not the first time that we have seen such outbursts or people having to be forcibly removed from a case involving Enoch Burke, but certainly the scenes that unfolded before my eyes in the Court of Appeal on Tuesday beggar belief. We were all gathered there for the Court's judgment in an appeal taken by Enoch Burke against uh, High Court orders put in place last August and September directing him to stay away from his former school, Wilson's Hospital School in County Westmead, and when it became clear that the tide was turning against him, that he wasn't going to win his appeal. Uh, His sister, Amy Burke, took to her feet. She interrupted the president of the court mid-speech, and that's when it all kicked off. The court rose for a few minutes. they had asked for her to be removed. When they returned, uh, she hadn't left, and the judge did decide to continue reading the ruling, uh, but he didn't get very far into it when... He was interrupted again. The court rose for a second time. They didn't return this time. And that's when it all really uh, kicked off. Amy Burke was removed by four officers. Uh, her parents and Enoch Burke's parents, they were both in court too. Uh, they got involved. Enoch had to be restrained. So too did... Uh, Enoch's brothers Isaac and Simeon. The Burks simply refused to leave. They quite literally dug the heels in. The court staff tried to empty the courtroom. It was a packed courtroom, as you can imagine. There were a lot of transition year students there watching proceedings. When all of this kicked off, I was tapping away on my laptop behind a bench directly behind uh, where the Burks were sitting. I actually had to put both my feet up on that bench to prevent it from toppling over as the guards tussled with the barks in in the aisle. Enoch was screaming at them to leave his father alone. He called them pugs. There were scuffles. Uh, Enoch grabbed a hold of one of the benches, refused to let it go as one guard that was over his shoulder hadn't laid a hand on him at this point, uh, simply trying to reason with him, trying to get him to leave without incident. That wasn't the case he was dragged out, uh, Simeon Burke too. Um, Isaac Burke, uh, Enoch's brother, was the last to be brought out of court, and he was dragged along the floor uh, by a couple of Gardaí. There were some unsavoury scenes outside the courthouse, I'm sure you and your listeners yeah. have seen them, uh, in the news footage where you know members of the family were being dragged out. But efforts were made inside the courtroom in mean, the 15 minutes or so before those shots were taken. Efforts were made by the Gardaí to resolve that without incident. The Burke simply was not leave and then not long after that less than two hours later we had Simeon Burke appearing before a district court judge just um, down the keys in the criminal courts of justice uh, he was arrested and charged with a breach of the peace he was remanded in custody and that was his own doing because there was absolutely no objection to bail he could have got bail all he had to do was sign a bond the tune of about 200 euro but he refused to okay. pay it through he was remanded in custody
3: Just before I leave you Frank, he, he's still out w- outside Wilson's Hospital School, is he Enoch Burke?
7: I understand that he did attend there yesterday so that would have been the day after all of this madness unfolded before the Court of Appeal. I'm not sure if he is there today but he battled pretty bitter conditions yesterday to stand outside the, the school I understand on Wednesdays Wednesdays are half days for um, school staff and the pupils at Wilsons Hospital School so it was a half day for Enoch Burke yesterday but he was there in the bitter cold. Whether he's there or not uh, today I don't know. But if he is, he is in defiance of those court orders that were put in place last August and September and again he challenged those orders. As we all know this week he was unsuccessful in that challenge.
3: Frank Graney, Courts Correspondent thank you for joining us.
8: Michael, michael Reed, Reed on, on
3: LMFM. FM. Welcome back to the program. If you want to contact us, email michael at lmfm.ie or WhatsApp oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. If you've just joined us, here with Alan Cantwell through till eleven o'clock on the Michael Reed show this morning. Just want to return to that um, story that has been uh, running in the news since this morning that the teacher says there's currently a shortage of two hundred and fifty thousand homes that it will take a long time to close that gap. He told his party colleagues last night that at least 40,000 homes need to be built every year. We're joined by uh, Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland this morning. Mike, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. I'm just looking at your website there, um, Mike, and the number of people who are homeless and are relying on emergency homeless accommodation. Apart from a slight dip from around about May 2020, to January, no, to September twenty-one. The graph is only going one way, and that's up. Presumably, it will keep on that uh, on that trajectory of going up in the coming months.
5: Yeah, the, the period in which it goes down is during the uh, eviction ban during COVID, and that made a big difference. The number of uh, families that were homeless. It wasn't just the eviction ban during that period of time. Um, there was a lot of hard work from local authorities and from organisations like Focus Ireland and from families themselves to, to move out of homelessness, to get accommodation, and there were new places becoming available for, for, for a lot of reasons during the, the, the COVID period. And that saw that big drop and huge amount of work to achieve that. So it's been appalling uh, to watch the figures creep up every month for the last 13 months. The figures have gone up, um, um, and you know for the last seven months, it's, it, it's been, been a record. And the reasons it's going up are all entirely known. And so, the T-shirt coming out and saying, um, you know, we actually, in fact, have been underestimating the number of new houses we need for, you know, the last two governments, essentially, that he has been in, is part of a a, a frighteningly uh, persistent pattern in which homeless organizations on the front line can see exactly what they see exactly what the issues are and are passing our you know our, our knowledge and our wisdom if you like and our recommendations on the government and we're ignored for year after year after year and then suddenly the government um comes along and says oh yeah actually you were right all along um when they, it's, it's it's not too late but it would be much better if we'd been listened to when we first raised the evidence-based points we raised and action was taken then rather than so many years later, because we have been saying this for 10 years, that the the projections in uh, Alan Kelly's plan, in Simon Coveney's plan, in Owen Murphy's plan, in... O'Brien's plan I'm sure I've forgotten somebody there Yeah, but, the but
3: sure Mike time. you know the, the, this is the, too low. Yeah, this, this is an historic problem and when yeah. we look at the present administration and we know that Fona ha, ha, have been there for quite some time but there existed a perfect storm within the within the space of just little more than a decade we had the financial crash the meltdown the global financial crash that had a massive impact in relation to house building in ireland we had the covid pandemic when nothing happened during that and we're playing catch-up from decades of inaction on the part of many administrations around the problem when it comes to building social housing
5: absolutely that we have those long historical uh, challenges Um, I suppose that the, the country that homeless organizations particularly want to draw attention to because it's been so successful in dealing with homelessness, it's Finland. And Finland had as bad a time during the financial crisis as Ireland did. And one of the big differences between what they did and what we did is they kept building social housing right the way through their crash. And we stopped building it.
3: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once.
5: Uh, you know, they said and the actual period of the, the impact of the global crisis on Finland was greater than the impact on uh, Ireland, we just made different decisions and, you know, along with the European Union and it wasn't just entirely uh, up to Irish uh, politicians we, the, the European Union has some some uh, um, blame to, to shoulder and but there's, you know, you can spend a lot of time thinking, talking about what went wrong in the past, you've got to learn from that, but it's, you know uh, it's more important to look at the future and so there isn't any – you can't blame the global crisis for the fact that um, rebuilding Ireland, which was the strategy about 2017, mm-hmm. or Housing for All, completely underestimated the need for housing. And so the fact that – so, it, for, so you, you have a situation where rebuilding Ireland, all the people involved in it can say it met its targets, and yet homelessness went up. And you can say that uh, uh, Housing for All is meeting all its targets. But homelessness has gone up, and that leads to a sense of despair amongst people, and a sense that these problems can't be solved. And of course, they can be solved. Other countries have solved
3: them. But okay, you have so to then, set
5: then the targets at the right level. Yeah, uh, if you're going to understand any chance of of solving them, and you have to listen to the people on the ground who know the problem and not just dismiss them as if we're some sort of
3: right. So therefore, th- therefore we wrong. we have we're to look not at to the
5: political process. We are trying to bring the evidence the experience of the people we're working with to the debate and we've been treated as if we're as, you know you know critics of the government when we're not
3: We're right to so we're talking them. then on the part of politicians not just the Taoiseach but you know previous yeah. Taoiseach ministers politicians local and national lack of vision lack of leadership that's why we are where we are is that reasonable
5: Uh, Ah, I mean, that's more of a political point. I mean, I I,
3: I suppose... Well, no, it's not, because remember, we elect the people to do the job of work we ask them to do, and if they're not delivering on what we want them to do, that shows lack of leadership, lack of vision.
5: Yeah. Uh, yeah, Okay, so I'm not not, not going to disagree with that. The point, though, I think, in this case is... It's lack of willingness to face up to the to to the scale of the challenge. So I think politicians down there have looked at the actual housing need and said, We better not be honest about the level of housing need because we're not going to, you know, because we don't because that would require us to do things we don't want to do. So let's Put out these complicated, these, these big strategies, which underestimate the housing need, and then we can say we're achieving our targets. And that's a so it, in a sense, it's like it's worse than lack of vision. There is a bit of a dishonesty about the uh, about the extent to which repeated governments have been honest with people about what actually is achieved, is, is what actually is required, and that has led to a sense, as I say, of fatalism and that nothing can be, can be done. Uh, because we seem to be hitting all the targets and things seem to to be getting worse. It's much better to actually face up to the reality of the scale of the problem we have and then ha- try and have a response which is uh, appropriate to, to, to the scale of it, so it's welcome that <laughs> the issue has finally acknowledged the, the extent of, of the challenge. But it would have been so much better if we'd
3: acknowledged the scale okay.
5: of the challenge six, seven
3: years ago. Right? Should we be looking at adopting an Alan Dukes Talis strategy type initiative around housing that we sit down and it's cross-party that we are in unison, one voice, one direction? Let's just all together agree to disagree that nobody. As the entire solution, but together we collectively can resolve it.
5: Uh, we very strongly feel that, that's, that, that that needs to be part of what the response is because if you look at, maybe if you're talking about the eviction, private rented sector, or if you're meant to talk about development and so on, the, even the existing governments keep on changing the plan and one minute it's one thing and one minute it's the next thing. And there's one thing that we know that developers and house builders require is some certainty over a few years period because it takes that length of time to raise the money and get the planning permission to build the build unit, and so you need some sort of consensus across the entire country everybody's involved as to sort of how are we going to, to to deal with these issues over a period of, a period of time and we propose that there should be a a commission on housing that would look over that twenty, 20 year period and the government adopt that they set up a commission on housing but they don't the, the crucial part of that is that commission on housing needed to bring in the opposition voices, the people who are, are, are currently outside the consensus, you know, people like you know, uh, like Sinn Fein, or people like the uh, Social Democrats and Labour, and, and, and the, the various economists and other commentators. If you're going to have a consensus, you got to, the whole point is to bring those people in didn't make that effort. So they they went with the the Housing Commission idea, and I think it will make a useful contribution, but it won't achieve what you're talking about there, which is that we achieve some national consensus of of where we're going, which we can that that, the people who need to build the houses and finance the houses can more or less rely on over the sort of 15-20 15-20 year period is going to take to, to really get to where we want
3: to Well I think that's the important point that seem, seems to have been lost in this whole negotiation that to think that this is a problem that can be solved in a year or two years is utter lunacy it won't. This is a decades problem that will be resolved over a period of a number of administrations.
5: Yeah and with consistent uh, that uh, thinking and, 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 now obviously you need to adapt to, to changes in the economy and environment as things change. I'm not saying you, you set on a strategy, you just just keep close your eyes and keep walking. But, but countries that have done well on this and other areas in Irish policy where we've done very well on that have, have, have achieved this sort of consensus and we've got nothing like that, uh, being, uh, put forward in, 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 in terms of housing. But I just, for, for my own point of view, for Focus Ireland, Involved since the beginning of the current homeless crisis of 2013 and so on. The number of meetings I've been at in which the whole basis of the discussion is well, let's concentrate on what we can do quickly. What are kind of the, the easy wins? What's the low hanging fruit? This sort of, sort of thing. Of course, you've got to do that, but that's important. But I'm constantly bedeviled by this notion that if in 2013 we had sat down and we'd said, what can we do that will really make a difference but will take eight years? we'd be beginning to see some of the benefits of that. And instead of that, is always eight years you yeah. know, ahead of us. If you want to achieve something that's going to take eight years, you've got to start now.
3: Okay, we leave it there. Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy with Focus Ireland. Thank you for joining us. If you want to um, call us, and I would be interested to hear from anybody who finds themselves in a position that they will be homeless as a result of what was announced by the government only uh, a day ago. Please contact us, email michael at lmfm.ie or you can uh, WhatsApp or text us 800 658.
8: Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
3: The Joint Oireachter's Committee on Health was told that there is significant untapped potential in Ireland's community pharmacy sector. The Irish Pharmacy Union outlined a series of proposals to expand the range of services available at pharmacies which will improve patient care and relieve pressure on the health system. Joining us this morning with more on this is Cathy Marr of Haven pharmacy to and chair of the irish pharmacy union's contractors committee kathy good morning thanks for joining us now when you say you want to make a greater contribution what are you talking about and what services could you provide to alleviate the pressure on other health services
1: absolutely good morning alan I suppose when we look around community pharmacy and we know that it's the most accessible element of our healthcare system. We believe there's a pharmacy in nearly every town and village in the country and about 85% of the population within live within about 5 kilometres of the pharmacy mm-hmm. and 50% of the population live within 1 kilometre. So we all have a pharmacy at our doorstep and that's easy access to a very accessible healthcare professional. So with that infrastructure, we can see huge, huge opportunities for public health. And one of the main recommendations that we made, the IPU made to the Eructus Health Committee yesterday, was the introduction of a minor ailment or a triage scheme. So to describe to you how that would work, a minor ailment is generally defined as a condition that's minor in nature. You might know it as athlete's foot or maybe a mild eye infection or vaginal thrush or dermatitis. There's, there's about 30 minor ailments, mm. usually minor in nature. They resolve on their own with a little bit of help, reasonably diagnosed by the pharma- in the pharmacy setting. And it's managed by medicines that are supplied directly with the phar- by the pharmacist. So if we have a patient who has a medical card, so by nature of their financial means, they have a medical card, so cannot afford the trip to the GP. If they present to me currently with a minor ailment and I have a medicine that's available without prescription and I know we'll treat them. But if that's on their medical card, I must send them back to the GP to get the prescription. To come back to me and get the medicine so straight away when I described that and we described it yesterday then your doctor's joint telling
3: tying up the system for no good tying reason tying
1: up the system for something that is very you know minor in nature and self-limiting and easily treated so that patient then it's also a delay in treatment so when we look at patient outcomes that's a delay in treatment and that's not satisfactory for any condition okay kathy
3: let me ask you most reasonable people with what we consider to be a minor ailment or condition would go to the first port of call being the pharmacy and wouldn't necessarily go to the gp are you finding that that is the case or not
1: it is the case because that's what we do all day, every day. We diagnose and treat minor conditions. And if you have the luxury of being able to pay for private treatment, so whether it's buying something across the counter without prescription, if you have the luxury of being able to do that, then you get your treatment straight away. But for those people that have medical cards that need to get their medicine free of charge with the GMS levy, they have to get their medicine free of charge from the GP. They must present to the GP who must write a prescription. That's the legislative framework that we work within. Mm bear in mind Alan, come April we have another 420,000 medical cards coming into the system so the pressure that GPs are under is immense. It's anticipated that this could save maybe a million GP visits, you know, and we think of that. So if I look at a patient and I have two patients standing in front of me and one has both of medical cards, one say has athlete's foot and I know I can reach behind me, take their and cream off the shelf and I know how, how it's treated, what to treat, how long to use it for and I can give all of that advice the patient with athlete's foot must then present to the GP. Must ring, make their appointment, present to the GP, and the prescription will be sent to me, and then I can dispense it. So there's a delay in treatment. It's taken up an appointment. If I have another patient standing beside them with maybe complex or uncontrolled blood pressure.
3: Okay. So, okay. Again, Ken, th- th- this is all common sense stuff. So why yeah. aren't we changing the regime? What's, What's the difficulty the here?
1: Absolutely, and that's our question, what's the delay? There was a pilot in 2016, 2017 to evaluate and to, to see the workings of a minor amendment scheme. And it's been shown that it can work very, very easily. The infrastructure in terms of IT is in place to allow pharmacies to deliver this. So that's our ask right now, is let's get this done. And not even that, let's get it done to not just provide that service, the equitable or equal service to medical care patients, that private patients already enjoy, but let's extend it out a little bit further. There are some medicines that are subject to prescription only, regulations that i know again that we could use our clinical skills and actually diagnose and treat those minor conditions so we can use change a very simple change in the legislation to allow extend that then the minor ailments medical care patients but extend that to a triage service we could then treat more minor conditions
3: where do you stand in relation to giving prescription medicine out are you uh reluctant to do something like that would you prefer to see that continue to be in the hands of a gp rather than me presenting to you saying i need a, an, an antibiotic for a strep throat or whatever
1: yeah antibiotic prescribing is really it, it's quite sensitive because we have to look at where antibiotic prescribing has gone and the level of anti- pro- antibiotic resistance that we see globally so in terms of prescription-only medicines, the legislation is I cannot give a prescription-only medicine without the legislative framework of a prescription mm-hmm. and the repeats and the, the, the leg- legality of the length of duration of the prescription. So we do work within that. But there are medicines that are subject to prescription-only that can be given and are given safely around the world Such as minor conditions, such as um, diflucan, oral fluconazole for the treatment of thrush, such as conjunctivitis medicines, and um, minor antibiotic eye drops, other things maybe for, for scabies or for um, migraines, some moderate pain relief. We have good pain relief over the counter. Other things that can be given on prescription. So in terms of what we can do, there is a triage service that we're ready to go with should the department engage with us.
3: And are they prepared to do that? What sort of hearing have you had from the department around what seems to be a very easily and rolled out
1: workable solution? The soundings have been good. We had a very positive meeting with the Minister at the end of November and the soundings have been good. We can see where the pressures in the system are. and The ethos of Slauncher care, the ethos of future healthcare in Ireland is to treat any condition at the lowest level of complexity. So if it's a minor condition, it should be treated in the community setting close to where people live. And ideally, that's pharmacy when we think about it. We showed directly through COVID how our doors remained open. We were the most accessible healthcare professional. So the minister acknowledges that and has thanked us for that, but knows the key role that we have to play. I actually heard him on another radio station yesterday morning saying, we hope to have investment in community pharmacy to extend this and other things such as contraception without prescription to allow that equitable choice and access to healthcare for people.
3: And do you have the resources and expertise to be able to fulfil the needs should the Minister decide to go ahead with this?
1: We have resources. There's certainly, like every healthcare professional, there is a workforce crisis at the minute and it's very difficult to get qualified staff in any health discipline. But we do need to have the sector invested in and resourced properly. The Minister does and is obliged to review the fees paid to pharmacy on the state schemes before the end of this June and we're looking forward to active engagement mm. with them to make sure that the sector is resourced properly, that these services can be rolled out and ultimately it's about treating and having the best outcomes for patients. And,
3: and of course it has to be an attractive proposition for an individual to be able to walk into the pharmacy Tell them what is required, get that and walk out. We kind of have a situation where somebody has to ring a pharmacy to make an appointment and hang around for a while before they get what they need. So they're probably better off going to the GP for that.
1: Well, for the more minor conditions, certainly they can be dealt with quite quickly over the counter. That's absolutely no problem in terms of, say, a, a prescription only medicine that changed. The legislation changed for relatively recently, within the last decade emergency contraception, there's no way I could do that in a three or four minute consultation across the counter. So that person would obviously be brought in for confidentiality reasons, but also the length and detail that's required in that consultation to come into the consultation room. It might take 10, 10, 11 minutes and that's where that will go. So depending on the condition, but pharmacists are medicines experts. We're clinically trained, so we know when to assess. Every pharmacy must have a consultation room that's visually and audibly private. So people are reassured that You know, and I'd be in my consultation room multiple times every day, having reasonable conversations with people. Some people, it might take two or three minutes to diagnose and treat a condition. Others take a little bit more gleaning because we need to be sure if there are red flag symptoms that I refer to the appropriate level, whether it's back to a GP or whether it's into A&E or wherever we need to go. The patients know that we're the first port port of call and we can triage appropriately from there.
3: Okay Kathy Meyer of Haven Pharmacy in Dulic, Chair of the Irish Pharmacy Union's uh, Contractors Committee Thank you for joining us. Let me get to some of your comments because I don't want to be in a position towards the end of the programme where you've very kindly sent them in and we never had an opportunity to read them out and if you want to comment on any particular aspect of the programme please feel free to do that You can do it on email at michael at lmfm.ie or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658 So let's go to the first of those Commons. Paddy says the Green Party need to do the decent thing, pull the plug on this government now if they want to have any TDs after the next election. If they don't, it will be a 2011 result all over again. Eamon says that he firmly believes that this is the worst government we have ever had in his 60 odd years on the planet. He says that he's sick and tired of this country and how it's being run. He cannot see any positivity in the future of this country. Rita says the scenes in the doll yesterday were terrible to watch. It was like watching a bunch of kids flinging insults at each other and the crux of the matter fell by the wayside. We don't need our politicians playing political football with this issue. It's too important to too many people. Mary says shame on Minister Darrow O'Brien for making this decision. The ramifications of this will be disastrous for so many people and yet government don't seem to care a jot. It's disgusting, she says. And the eviction ban finally. Tina thinks... The government will live to rue the day they decided to end the ban. There's no way this decision will not come back to haunt them at the polls. Tina says she heard Ivana Bachik call on Minister O'Brien to cancel his St Patrick's Day plans and stay at home to address the housing crisis. And Tina says she agrees completely with Ivana. The minister shouldn't be going anywhere when there is such a mess in his department. Let's take a break. We're right back.
8: Michael Go Reed, Reed on, on
3: LMFM. 11 years ago, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith instructed the Redemptorist authorities to remove Father Tony Flannery indefinitely from his priestly ministry. The Association of Catholic Priests and the Lay Catholic Group believe that a grave injustice has been perpetrated against Tony Flannery in that he has been denied standard prerequisites of just and fair procedure. He was never informed who his accusers were, never given an opportunity to defend himself, and never allowed to appeal the decision. Joining us this morning is Brandon Hoban, founding member of the Association of Catholic Priests. Brandon, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Let me just ask you first, Brandon, how many um, Catholic priests does your organisation represent?
6: Around a thousand at the moment.
3: Okay, and how many priests are in the country? I'm just Around trying to get a, a sense of. Sorry, how many? Three thousand. Three thousand, okay. Talk to us a little bit about the the history of this uh, case for those of us who are not too familiar with it because it strikes just on a cursory read over it that here we had what would consider to have been a very progressive individual within the Catholic Church who was saying the things that we were thinking but we were afraid to say he said them and he was booted out. Is that that a fair synopsis?
6: Well, I suppose it's fair enough because basically what happened is that the Association of Catholic Priests uh, was founded Uh, you know, a year before, or two years before, uh, Tony was, as you say, booted out, if you like, uh, out of ministry, of the act of ministry. Now, he was removed in 2012, so that's 11 years ago. And 10 years ago, Francis arrived. Now, in the time of Pope Benedict, there were certain things you weren't supposed to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, the ordination of women and so on and so forth. And Tony talked about those things. He also explained developments in Scripture studies and so on, Uh, to to a popular audience in reality magazine now between the reality magazine and the questions he was surfacing he was regarded as somebody who was dangerous and during the time of pope benedict he was actually taken to task for this somebody reported him to rome he doesn't know who reported him Uh, a process was engaged in the the cdf the congregation of the doctrine of faith that you mentioned didn't deal with him directly uh, they dealt with the redemptress, and they eventually forced the redemptress to withdraw them from priestly ministry.
3: Okay well tell me the sort of things that he was saying that so inflamed the Catholic hierarchy that they should move against him in the manner in which they did. I mean they couldn't have been that outrageous what he was saying.
6: It well, were not that outrageous and it, particularly in terms of Francis coming who changed the whole kind of culture if you like of discussion and of consultation and so on. The sort of things he was talking about were the ordination of women uh, mandatory celibacy for priests, that kind of thing.
3: And the rights of, of of the gay community, that sort of thing?
6: Absolutely. All of that. All of that. These were the issues, kind of, that were discussed. And he discussed them, and he surfaced them. And uh, Francis then arrived uh, a year later, after he was stepped down. And we expected that Francis then, because he was open and accepting of things, and was anxious for discussion, I was anxious for group Uh, involvement with priests and people together and so on, that it was only a matter of time that uh, Francis would undo the damage that had been done. Mm -hmm. And what we are saying, really, as an association of Catholic priests and uh, in conjunction with the lay Catholic group that supports him, we are saying that a terrible injustice has been done to him and that the injustice could have been undone, should have been undone, and can still be undone, but that Tony is left now in a funny situation. Uh, He's refused... For example, he was refused permission to officiate at his sister's funeral, as per her wishes. I mean, she died a few years ago, and he asked for permission to say her funeral mass, and it was refused.
3: Well, here's the thing, Brendan. Am I correct in saying that he was invited back into the fold by the Catholic Church, albeit with some form of gagging orders? Is that correct?
6: Not really, no. they never got to that stage. It never really got to that stage. I mean, the reality was that he wanted to come back. He was anxious to come back. But he wanted his I- the issues that he was talking about, not so much the issues, but he wanted this situation to be discussed with them. And in other words, kind of, if it was in a secular or civil situation, you would expect certain preconditions in terms of a process of just and fair procedure, uh, as you mentioned there. If somebody is accused of something, you would imagine that they would have a chance to defend themselves, to state their case to the people who were accusing them, to know who was accusing them, and so on. But the, the, the procedure of the CDF, the Congregation of the of Faith, was completely flawed. And as a result of this, I mean, a grave injustice has been perpetrated. Okay,
3: well, in hindsight, did he do the right thing? Because when you think about it, it's much easier to initiate change when you're within an organisation than whether you're outside the tent, as it were. He should have stayed where he was, kept his mouth shut, but worked behind the scenes in order to change views, teachings of the Catholic Church. Was that not a better strategy?
6: Well, I can understand where you're coming from in terms of saying that, but... If we have learned anything in the Catholic Church, it isn't that if we see something is wrong, that we should say it's wrong. The difficulty we have in terms of the whole child abuse situation, for example, I don't want to particularly get into that, but it was because people knew stuff was going on and they didn't sort of put their hand on their, on their hearts and say, this is what's wrong, this needs to be stated, and I'm going to say it. Obviously, kind of Tony is very much in, still inside the institution, and he's still working for change through the Association of Catholic Priests. So he's not in any sense kind of a, a person who, uh, in a sense, has has abandoned the church in any way. He's still very much part of part of it.
3: So, despite what we think that the Catholic Church is, has had its road to Damascus moment, it actually hasn't. Whilst it talks about change and inclusivity, in fact if we look at this case they're just talking out of both sides of their mouth
6: well this case is a huge embarrassment it's a huge embarrassment to the catholic church it's a huge embarrassment to the redemptorist congregation that tony is a member of it's a huge embarrassment to people who are working in parish to priests who are working in parishes and so on where this case is thrown up in our faces and he's saying if this is the way you look after your priests i mean how do you look after anybody else and this is why 11 years after Tony was first kind of withdrawn from ministry indefinitely a life sentence in a sense 11 years after we're trying now as an association we're trying to start a campaign of getting this issue addressed once and for all Tony has suffered enough and it's time for the church authorities and time for the redemptorist authorities in particular to restore Tony Flannery to OK ministry.
3: does he still have fight in him?
6: Oh he has but now he's been after 11 years he's been struggling with this Um, it's quite obvious he hasn't the fight he had in him 11 years ago but i mean he's prepared to stick with this to get his his justice for himself.
3: Okay, and it 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 also uh, Brandon raises other issues in relation to the Catholic Church in Ireland and when we look at the numbers of ordinations and the number of people who are turning their backs on uh, on weekly mass and daily mass for that for that matter it really is in a bad place the church despite the fact that we have would like to have thought we've you know drawn a line under some of the really bad and nasty things that has happened to the church in, in, certainly in my lifetime.
6: Absolutely, I mean, the church is in a terrible place because effectively what's happening is that priests are disappearing. In 10, 15 years' time, we'd be talking about the last priest in Ireland if something doesn't change. And in a sense, I suppose you could say that the history of the church would show us that the church doesn't change very easily, but that if it, it finds itself in a position where it has to change, it can change quite quickly. And I think changes are taking place now very, very quickly in terms of the development of lay ministries because priests are disappearing, but also the issues that Tony talked about, like the ordination of women, like the um, mandatory uh, celibacy for priests and so on. The reality is that if we want male celibate priests, we're not going to get them anymore. And something has to be done, something has to give. And I think in a sense the contribution of people like Tony would be that these issues were surfaced way before their time. And if we had listened to people like Tony Flannery, we'd be in a different place now.
3: So what we have is an, an absolute disconnect from the reality of societal change, which is happening not just in Ireland, but across the globe. They are just behind the curve so badly on it.
6: Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing at this stage that things that are so obviously needed to be done and need need to happen, that people are still discussing whether it would be a good idea or not. There is, of course, the difficulty in the Catholic Church that there is another sort of very conservative traditional group who traditionally have punched way above their waist in terms of the Latin Mass and so on. But I think with Pope Francis, we're coming to a point, I hope we're coming to a point, where that kind of opposition will be be confronted and that there is some possibility of movement, albeit at the 11th hour.
3: Now, well, for obvious reasons, we know why people continue to go to Mass and continue to um, practice their faith, and that's perfectly fine. But when you look at the state of the Catholic Church, surely the onus should be on us, on those who go to Mass, to turn their back, send a very clear message to the upper echelons, change, or else we will continue to turn our back.
6: Well, that's what's happening. I mean, even without saying it, it's quite obvious that from time to time, Uh, surveys and so on indicate that what you've just said is actually happening. I'm hoping that the whole emphasis of Pope Francis and the ACP is hoping we've been pushing this for years way before Pope Francis came uh, individuals in the ACP and we, we, we were hoping that there will be, through this synodal pathway that we hear so much about in the synods that are going to be organised in Rome in the next few years, uh, we're ho- this year and next year, we're hoping that it, the kind of mo- momentum for change will occur that will take on board as you say the fact that we're living on a different planet we're out of touch with the way people live and that we need to get really our act together
3: Okay and just finally before I let you go Brendan what is the next step in this campaign from Tony's uh, perspective?
6: Well what we're trying to do is to generate publicity first of all obviously and then sort of to start a campaign of contacting the people who matter people like the redemptorist authorities people like the Irish bishops people like Pope Francis of course ultimately and trying to get this Uh, publicity about this so that people will begin to understand the injustice that has been perpetrated on Tony Flannery and the general need there is for us to change the way the Church is going.
3: Brendan Holborn, founding member of the Association of Catholic Priests, thank you for joining us this morning. Let me just uh, get to some more of your comments around some of the issues which we raised on the programme. Let's go back to the Uh, The lifting of the eviction ban. Matthew says we had uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna government and some formation running the country for the past two decades. And look where that got us in a mess. It's time to shake things up politically and give someone else a chance in charge. What have we got to lose, he says. In relation to just the uh, piece we've finished there on Tony Flannery, uh, Martha is listening with interest to the conversation with Brendan Hoban and says she has never understood why Tony was removed from his ministry. He did absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, he did the opposite. He was, is. Exactly the kind of priest that the church needs right now to stop people turning from it. He's open-minded and loving in his views exactly what people want from the church. Michael,
8: michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: 86 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie Irish Rural Link believes the arrival of Ukrainians in rural areas is helping regenerate towns and villages nationwide. Around 75,000 Ukrainian people arrived here since Russia's invasion began in February of last year. Just under 15,000 Ukrainians Ukrainian children have been enrolled in schools across the country as of March 1st. Seamus Boland, CEO of Irish Rural Link, says there are plenty of benefits for people coming here to Ireland. And Seamus joins us this morning. Let me tell you, Seamus, I would be top of the list to move to Rural Ireland. My wife's not having a bar of it, but maybe after this conversation she'll change her mind because what people don't understand is there is so much more available, so much more opportunities, such a better lifestyle living outside cities because the, the idea of living in a city now is not a very palatable one. Is that a fair assessment, Seamus? Well, good morning, by the way.
9: Yeah, I think it is. Look, we know living in rural areas has its challenges, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment, but look, we also know uh, it's a great place to bring up children. Yeah. We also know that, you know, it, it has a, a slower, I suppose, Lifestyle in a sense uh, a little cheaper in terms of the housing and all of that sometimes it's not always available but it's it's just a better place and there's a lot of a lot of activities whether it's sport uh, cultural activities drama stuff like that uh, for for youngsters to get involved in for people to get involved in uh so it is a, it's, a, it's a desirable place to be. And I suppose in Irish Oralink we've yeah. commonly talked about the, some of the disadvantages, but it's a great place to be.
3: Okay, I'm, I'm just reminded that 30 years ago I was having these conversations with Rural Resettlement Ireland, with Father Harry Bowen, we remember Tom Parlin and decentralisation, yet we still haven't cracked it. Why haven't we been able <laughs> to populate these towns, these villages, rural Ireland in, in essence?
9: I, I think the biggest problem in, in, we talked all this stuff or people, policymakers talked this stuff but they didn't really believe it so jobs and central places were all set up based in cities. There is that city mentality, which seems to base everything there. Since COVID, that has changed radically. You know, the Tisha Dan Taoiseach, at the time, said this would be a radical shift in how we imagine people working and where they're working from. That's a first major change, and you can see it already. Mm -hmm. In fairness, the the Heather Humphries resettlement or sorry, the re-pumping of funding into rural areas is making a difference as well. And that's a slowish process, but it's a very steady process. But there is now a, a newer look at rural areas. And also for employers, I mean, Dublin and cities generally are really are, are really overwhelming in terms of space available, etc. And people are beginning to say we we, we can't, put stuff where there's no longer room for it and so rural areas offer that opportunity and with technology people can work from there so it it offers all those opportunities.
3: Yeah I'm I'm not convinced though uh, Seamus albeit we have seen a shift towards that more remote working in rural Ireland in a post-COVID world I don't think we have monopolized on it as much as we should have or could have.
9: Not yet, we haven't, but we're moving in that direction. As I said, the biggest need, despite all the rhetoric you mentioned 20, 30 years ago, talking to different people, was a, a cultural, psychological shift, which is beginning to happen people who can work from their own area are now looking to and demanding to do so. That takes a little bit of time, and it also takes a little bit of uh, psychological shift from employers, etc. But it's beginning to happen slowly. I think it will happen more, and we see now with this, uh, the refugees, ironically, uh, a lot of young people are going to be schooled and educated, it looks like with this war, because it's lasting a while, are going to to live and work. You already see underage GA teams lining out with the most strangest of names, which is wonderful. So you are going to see a lot more looking to stay and be based in it. Take a little while, but it's happening. And I I think uh, like everything else is always good to look uh, uh, now, rather than when it's
3: too late. It's it's quite a complex undertaking, though, Seamus. When you consider that people are coming who are fleeing war, the psychological impact and and other um, impacts, uh, particularly amongst children, <coughs> excuse me, to subplant them into rural Ireland with no supports or facilities is not really workable
9: well that's here's where the where we're really going to get serious in terms of, of looking at uh, access you know we're talking about improving our transport obviously we're talking about improving the access to health services and other services that we com- complain about and we're talking about improving the whole educational availability as well and we're talking about investment encouraging employers our potential investments to come uh, to rural areas economists can Continually tell us that look, you you can't you know you can't justify spending in rural areas because the population is there. I think that pressure is already happening, and I think we now are. And it is a challenge. I think it's a good challenge for governments to face, but they are now facing that challenge to encourage investment, but also to encourage the various social supports required.
3: Now, you also pointed to Heather Humphreys and the work that she has carried out in terms of providing finance to upgrade the small villages, the small towns, the the, the run-down mm. buildings and whatever, and that is beginning to, to work. Is there an appetite, do you believe, to open it all up to anyone, or is it more, I won't say insular, but is it more about well, you know, it's important that our own people who have lived here all their lives get the opportunity to live in these areas, to be housed in their own local areas, without going outside to bring people yeah. in?
9: I, I think, obviously, the, the challenge, of course, is making sure, first of all, you know, everybody, especially people who grow up in an area, uh, have that opportunity. And I think a lot of the planning laws are designed to try and protect that kind of uh, grouping. But let's be clear, we have been crying for years to increase the number of people in rural areas because in itself, it brings extra services, it demands extra um, meeting of all of those uh, services that we need. So I think, yes, there are challenges. We can't, we have to make sure, there's even challenges with the current refugee system where everybody's been housed in hotels, that can't last. Uh, It's also damaging the tourist area, so that's a major challenge. And anyway, no, no refugee or anyone else come to another country just Mm -hmm. to live permanently in a hotel. So, it's not without its um, challenges.
3: So, what makes you think despite the challenges that it will work this time? As we said at the outset, I've had these conversations for the past 35 years and we're still having the same conversation.
9: Uh, Yeah, indeed. Well, I've always said I would rather um, have the problems of dealing with an increasing number of people living in rural ireland than a decreasing number because the decreasing number as censuses showed over the years showed that mainly the older people were left and all the others were gone I'd rather be dealing with this challenge. It will not be easy and it will have political problems associated with it as well as economic and social. But at least we are now looking at areas that that will be demanding more school places, demanding more health services in the area. And that will benefit not just the people who need it right now and people coming in, but it will benefit everybody. So everybody actually is better off Uh, where there are more services available because the population has increased. That's a given, and that's uh, something I'd rather be trying to solve. And and key,
3: though, key to success here is infrastructure. We're not quite there yet. I mean, when you look at broadband, for example, there are still issues there. (laughs)
9: talk to me. <laughs> Where I live, I can't even get it. The broadband, uh, look, it's, it's proving to be far too slow in its delivery. It's, in, it's impacting on the availability of industry to provide jobs, et etc. et cetera. Yeah, it's, it's there. But at least when our ruling really first proposed in 2007, a long time ago, it seems now, that broadband should be brought to every house, we were told by every economist that we had lost the complete plot. It uh, took them nearly till now to begin that process. If they had to do it when we suggested it, it would be now done. We have a habit in this country of being far too slow. And that's why we're saying now embrace this challenge get people, in. they're coming into the rural areas now for various reasons, start planning for it now instead of waiting for some crisis in 10 years' time.
3: Okay, Seamus Boland, CEO of Irish Rural Link, thank you for joining us this morning, and thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you still want to contact the show, even if we're off air, by all means do that. You can email michael at lmfm.ie. I will be back with you tomorrow, same time for the final time, but till then, from me, Alan Cantrell, good morning the michael
2: reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie
1: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time